Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky, co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Rise Together podcast. I am excited to introduce you to a friend, Dr. Thomas Hemingway. He is a board-certified physician. He's a father of six. That is a lot of kids. He's a surfer. He's also a host of a health podcast and a recent author of a book, Preventable, Five Powerful Practices to Avoid Disease and Build Unshakable Health. I am on a health journey of my own, and I am here for this. Uh, he's here today to share how you can optimize your health, energy, and vitality and avoid the most common and deadly diseases with simple, natural, and evidence-based lifestyle changes. I'm telling you, folks, we're going to talk about seven pretty simple but terribly life-changing things. If uh, you were to just do one of the things that we talk about today, I promise you, your life would be changed. Please welcome Dr. Hemingway to the show. Welcome to Rise Together. My name's Dave Hollis. I'm the host of this show where we're going to hopefully have you feeling a little more normal in this, the human experience. Maybe see yourself even in some of the stories that are told or have your appreciation of what it means to be human expanded by someone who's come on as a guest who's had a different life experience. In all of it, we are trying our best in community to learn from each other, to grow, and maybe even have a little bit more compassion for what it's like to walk in each other's shoes. When we do, we all rise together. Hi, Thomas. Aloha, Dave. It's great to, great to see you again. It's amazing to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. I'm so happy that you're here. I love the work that you do. Uh, I love that you approach it in some kind of traditional ways, but a lot of like untraditional, unconventional ways. But before we jump into how you practice, what you practice, and what you recommend, as much as I gave a quick intro of you at the top, would you, in your own words, introduce yourself and give a little of your story to the listeners? Oh, yeah, I would love to. So um, the story actually starts back when I was a kid. I've always been super intrigued by the body, I've always asked a lot of questions. In fact, annoyingly so for most of my cohort colleagues going through the schooling phases, which I did a lot of that, I love to ask questions. I think that's one of my biggest assets is I, I'm not afraid to ask the question. And so when I was a kid, I, I had two very different exposures to medicine. One was through my grandfather, who was a type 1 diabetic, which is the type that your pancreas doesn't work and doesn't secrete the insulin that you need to. And so he had to give himself insulin. He had to check his blood sugar. And like the earliest days of my childhood, I remember seeing him prick his finger. One particular afternoon, he was like, 
you know, making his finger bleed, checking the thing. And I'm like, Grandpa, why are you sticking yourself with that needle? That's insane. What are you doing? And, and he turned to me and he said, Thomas, I want to see you grow up. I want to see you as an adult. I want to, I'm doing this for you. And I was like, what the heck? And then there was another guy and he did amazing. Like he lived to his mid nineties. He had diabetes since his young life and he never lost any kind of appendage, a finger, a digit, a toe, didn't get blind, kidney disease, nothing. He was amazing. He was a health enthusiast. He was an amazing dude. I had another friend who was one of my favorite. Um, he, he was a basketball coach, but he was like in my church as well. He was one of the youth uh, group leaders. And he also had the same diabetes, type one. Um, he had to take insulin, but he didn't really think it was that important. He was kind of a larger than life guy. never paid attention to it. The guy died in his forties. And oh. for me, it was like, what? In, like, how is that even possible? It didn't even make sense to me. But I understood at that time that there was a big component of you and I, Dave, of what we can do. You know, often we think about health and disease as something that we just get. You know, we get the bad genes, for example, the bad DNA is our parents' fault or something else happened. And yet, even though a lot of the medical training is, is based in the DNA and the genetics and your predisposition, as they call it, the overwhelming majority of our health outcome, what actually happens to us is under our control, 90 some odd percent of it. And that's the whole phenomenon of epigenetics that's coming into vogue lately. And, and what I realize in my practice, I've been a physician more than 20 years now, is that sadly, in this country, most physicians don't focus very much on the things that you can do, the things that can be easy, they can be simple, they can be free, but they can be powerful. As you mentioned, they can change the trajectory of your life. Most people don't know this, but seven out of 10 of the leading causes of death worldwide right now today are almost entirely preventable. Heart disease, take that. Number one killer today, yesterday, tomorrow, and probably forever, it is 90 some odd percent preventable. Heart disease, the number one killer worldwide. Same with type two diabetes. Same with most of the neurodegenerative conditions that we all fear, Alzheimer's, dementia, Parkinson's. Many of these conditions can be prevented. So I sort of made this pivot in my life where Although I'm Western trained, I've been focusing really, really, really strongly the last decade on the natural preventative holistic approaches so that people don't need to suffer so much. I've seen way too much suffering in my time as a physician. I want to help end suffering, but do that in a way that is practical, it's simple, it's easy, it's free, and you and I can do it and we can make these changes today and our life will be profoundly impacted for the future, for our posterity. I mean, this is just powerful stuff. We can do this. It's in our control. Let's go, though. All right. So I'm excited about this in part because I will confess up front that I am someone who is just born skeptical of basically everything. I mean, it's like my Achilles heel is like I have been trained by, you know, a whole host of programming. And that programming says, uh, you know, believe in this and fear this. And one of those things ends up being like, believe in Western medicine, fear or question anything that might deviate from that. So before we even get into some of your recommendations, if someone's listening and they're like, oh, here we go, another woo-woo moment with someone who's going to talk about energy or whatever, like, and I'm not even like, energy's great, but- if, if you find yourself as a listener or if someone here is a listener who's just like, I don't know, man, I just want to go to a Western doctor and get traditional medicine. What do you say to someone who has that skepticism and, and maybe, you know, hasn't even been exposed to the stuff that you're talking about? Yeah, I would say I understand it. That's where I 
come from. That's where I was trained. I get it. I, so Western medicine is great. What we do really, really, really well is if you have a life-threatening emergency in this country, I'm speaking of the U.S., where you and I live, we can go to our emergency trauma center, our ER, if you will, and get the treatment that we immediately need. If we're involved in a terrible accident, if we have some life-threatening acute infection or illness, like we have amazing, amazing emergency care. But that's only 5 to 10% of all the medical care that happens in this country. 90 plus percent of it is in the what, what it would be called the chronic disease treatment and chronic disease prevention, which unfortunately doesn't happen a lot. It's mostly management. You know, and in fact, we even call that in, in, in the medicine management of these disease conditions, which is 90% of it. And that part, sadly, and I will be the first to share, we do terribly in this country. Yeah. We do not prevent disease well. We don't even manage it well. We do what I call the superficial band-aid approach, which is likely almost always treating the symptom. You know, Dave, if you have high blood pressure, what's the solution? Take a high blood pressure medication. Is your blood sugar too high? Might you have diabetes? Usually it's type two, which is the one that I'm referring to that being preventable. Take this medicine, right? It's just a simple band-aid approach which never actually gets to the root of what caused that illness or condition in the first place. And so that's what I'm about today, 2022, is the root cause approach so that we can not only effectively treat disease, but change the trajectory, even cure, even reverse, and then prevent in the first place. And this, this is all scientific. I'm, I'm the biggest skeptic of all times. I'm like you. I'm a scientist. I mean, that's my training. I'm trained to be skeptical. If somebody tells me something, I never take their word for it. I always look it up for myself. So we are in the same um, um, in that respect, we, we have that philosophy that you need to have the data. You need to back it with some study. This is not woo woo stuff. <laughs> yep. Yep. The word disease is interesting because I think of it in a certain context, but the way that your work attempts to try and describe the prevention of it maybe is worth just pausing for a second to have you explain like, what is disease? Yeah. So as a classically trained physician in Western medical school, we talked a lot about disease. Disease is basically any process that deviates from what we consider healthy, right? We used to call disease, in fact, we called health, we called health the absence of disease. Disease is when there's a process in the body that is not operating the way that it was designed or the way that's the most efficient. Something has gone awry in the body. That's disease. However, the issue with that philosophy is that we have viewed health as the absence of that. But health is not that. Health is living, like you said, Dave, at the beginning, being vital, having the energy that you want. What I, what I ask people is, what do you want to do today when you get up in the morning? Are you able to do the things that you want to do? Can you get out of bed? Can you do the activities, whether they be physical, mental, whatever the taxing thing that you want to put your body through? Do you have the ability to do all that? When you can do all of that, you are healthy and not until then. So health is much more than this, the simple absence of disease. It's much more than that. Yeah. So you've written this book, Preventable Practices to Avoid Disease and Build Unshakable Health. There are a handful of things that we're going to tick through today because simple doesn't mean profoundly effective. Um, but these are, from my perspective, some simple things that if people were to maybe think differently, they could develop a little more agency in their life and the way that they have an ability to keep themselves from disease or from something that might pull them away from that best version of who they'd hope to be when they get up in the morning. The first one that I want to tackle is food. 
because uh, in your words, right, food is the best medicine or is a slow poison and you get to decide. What do you mean by that? Medicine or poison? I think I have a sense. I'm in the like very, very final days of uh, training for an onstage physique competition and I have never in my life understood better the connection between what I put in my body and how it makes me feel and how my body processes it than I do in real time. But let's talk a little bit about um, how food can either be medicine or poison. Yeah, no, it's one of my favorite topics because it is one of the biggest levers that we have to really impact our health. And it's the most commonly neglected thing. I mean, especially with respect to most quote unquote medical professionals, physicians, you'll ask them, well, what to eat? And they'll just say, eat healthy. Well, what the heck does that mean? You know, I mean, everybody knows that, you know, an Oreo is not the same as broccoli, right? Even though, you know, if you have a one Oreo and then a big cup of broccoli, it's probably the same amount of calories. They have nothing to do with each other. One is of course, better for your body than the other. But the thing that's interesting about food is we sadly have dumbed it down to this calorie concept. Food is not just calories. It is not just quote unquote fuel or energy. It is much more than that. It is actually the information that tells our body how to conduct itself, how to get energy, how to process, how to be able to connect neural pathways. All of this information, whether or not the genes that get us healthy or, or get us sick or ill or with disease get turned on or off, that is largely from the messaging that happens when we eat food. Our food commands this. Our food is that primary player in this sort of, if you consider it the text messaging system of your body, the food is the one sending all the messages. It gets everything going. It's literally that pivotal and that key. And it's not just a calorie. A calorie is not a calorie, is not a calorie, is not a calorie. The calorie thing that started 100 plus years ago is not actually very good concept for people to grasp onto. It's much more than that. Food is information, food is powerful, or it could be destructive, right? Just like you said, it can be poison. And we get to make that decision multiple times of day. It is the most powerful lever. And when I talk about food, Dave, I'll give somebody um, listening a quick set of action steps. It's really simple. I love to encourage people to try all new different kinds of real food. In other words, in society, there are over 300,000 edible, both vegetables, fruits, and, and also animal products that are edible, over 300,000. Guess how many we eat, Dave, on an average basis in our lifetime? The average human eats, guess how many of these 300,000 varieties? How many think we eat? A thousand. 200. 200. Oh. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Really, it's oh. super sad. It's super sad. In fact, three or four of them, depending on where you live in the world, make up over 60% of all the calories you ever eat. And they are corn, they are wheat, they are soy and rice. Those four things make up over 60% of the calories consumed on this planet. And none of them actually really do much for our health. They might give us calories so we don't starve to death, but in my humble opinion, we are literally starving in society today 
in a sea of plenty. We are not in the problem that we were in 50 years ago where there were a lot of people dying from hunger and starvation. Now we are literally dying from the opposite of that. We are dying from obesity. Obesity is one of the leading causes of both death and what we call morbidity, all of the sort of adverse consequences of health problems worldwide. It has surpassed hunger. It has surpassed infectious disease. Almost any of these other conditions, obesity and the associated problems that go with that is literally the leading cause today of uh, morbidity. And that's according to The Lancet, which is the most, you know, one of the most well-respected journals out there. So it's, it's, it's wow. not what it used to be. Uh, food is much more than calories. Yeah, I mean, I, I think people think of food and the way that the, they eat in terms of weight loss primarily. Yeah. But talk a little bit about, because I'm really interested in that concept of like it being the air traffic controlling center for things like your energy level, things like your brain clarity. Like, what are examples of foods that, you know, give you, or, or is it individual, like that give you energy or give you clarity versus those that make you lethargic or focus, you know, challenged? Yeah. So, so there are some main principles that will affect all of us similarly. And then there is nuance and there is variation, of course, based upon an individual's makeup. So there is, both of those exist, but here's the thing. When I, when I say, you know, don't eat this or eat that. Most of what I say is to eat that. There's so much more of what we could eat. Like I said, 300,000 different things that are healthy for us. And there's really only three things to avoid. Three things. Can we remember three things? So the first one is the highly processed grains and flour. So, you know, for a lot of people, gluten's a problem, but wheat can be a problem. Um, corn can be a problem. Many of these grains I talked about, rice can be a problem. The highly processed things that are carbohydrates, those that come in a bag box or with a barcode, are very inflammatory. The second thing to avoid is the highly processed sugars. Anything that says high fructose corn syrup, you should avoid that like the plague. Run away. I mean, don't, don't eat that stuff. And then juices. Most juices are full of sugar as well. I tell people, eat their fruit. Don't drink it. Eat it. Eat it. Get all the fiber that comes along with that, and you'll avoid the blood sugar spite, avoid the inflammation. And then the third thing is just the seed oils. Avoid them like the plague. Basically, any oil that's unnatural that comes from processing, high pressure, high heat. They do crazy stuff. They, they, add, they add solvents. They add bleach just to make it even palatable. So the only couple of oils we should really eat are the natural ones that we've heard about, right? Olive oil. How do you get olive oil? You press the olive and squeeze it. Oil comes out. Avocado oil, same thing. It's an oily fruit. Yeah, it's a fruit. You press it, oil comes out. Coconut, my favorite coming from Hawaii. It's amazing. MCT oil comes from that. That's a healthy oil. And all of the other soybean, safflower, sunflower, canola, rice bran oil, those are the bad inflammatory oils. So those are really only the three things I tell people to avoid. And then eat everything else. Eat all the rainbow, as they say, all the colorful vegetables, the colorful fruits, you know, colorful meats. Yeah, meats can be colorful too. All of those things. And there's hundreds of thousands of choices out there. That's what you need to focus on. Real food. Real food first, not the empty, boring, calorie-dense stuff that is nutritionally poor, which is usually white or brown, and it comes in a bag, a box, or with a barcode, right? The rice, the soy, the grains, the, the wheat, all of that stuff we should try to really limit and, and avoid most of those processed things. So you have six kids, which is like 10,000 kids. I like Honestly, you have so many kids. Unbelievable. Uh, your kids, I'm going to guess, because they've lived in a house where this is just how you do what you do, don't have a palate that rejects the idea of not getting the Happy Meal, not getting the whatever it might end up being. But if you're a parent 
who's interested in developing healthy habits and kind of having the kind of foods that you'd hope to have for, for longevity and energy and every other thing that you'd hope for in your kid's life. Are there any tips that you give to a parent who maybe hasn't had this as a practice, but would like to introduce it and still be able to enjoy time with their children? A hundred percent. I mean, food for me is one of the most enjoyable things in life. Like if anybody were to know me real well, like you do, Dave, we sat down and ate lunch together. I ate everything on my plate and probably asked for seconds. People always called me a good eater. I love to eat and my kids love to eat too. But here's the thing. As parents, we have to remember we are still the parents. We, we need to be, of course, you know, friends with our children too, but we're a parent first. And as a parent, they follow our lead. So we have to take the lead. So if we want our kids to eat healthy, we have to eat healthy. And the cool thing is it rubs off. Like I wasn't always like this with my kids. With my, we, we got kids that are in college. We got kids that are as young as five years old. So we got the whole gamut here. When my kids that are in college now were younger, I literally was told by their pediatrician to buy apple juice and buy other juices. And, and I did it. You know, I was like, well, the pediatrician knows better. I'm a first time parent. How do I know what's good for my kid? And I was feeding them all the same kind of stuff that everybody else, you know, might be feeding their kids, you know, the dino nuggets and the French fries and the happy meals. And I was doing all that too. But the cool thing was when I changed what I was eating too, and I focused on that and I brought in more avocados, for example, or we just ate real food and rarely bought stuff in a package. They started eating that as well. In fact, my daughter, who's now five, my youngest, she'll come to me like begging for an avocado. She said, just cut the thing and she gets a spoon and she eats that whole avocado with a spoon. Like what five-year-old does that? She doesn't ask me for a Happy Meal. She doesn't ask me for chicken nuggets. So the cool thing with parents is that even though for me, it never, you know, wasn't always that way, it can change. And it changes right here, right now, Dave, with you and I. We have to be that change that we hope to see in them. And it will, I promise, it's not going to be overnight, but it will rub off on them. As we eat healthy, as we buy the real food and visit the you know, fast food places less and less and less, and hopefully in the, in the future very, very little, they will get those habits too. It, it does happen. It takes time. It's not overnight. And yeah, do I let my kids have ice cream and cake at a birthday party? Of course I do. Do I eat ice cream and cake at a birthday party? At least six times a year, Dave, when my kids have a birthday, I have a slice of cake. I might have a scoop of ice cream, but I'm not ha having seconds or thirds or fourths. I'm still enjoying all of that, but not in the same kind of daily practice that maybe I once did. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny. I uh, have meal prep as a part of life in the shortest uh, length of time now. And I had my 10-year-old ask if he could have a meal prepped tilapia, asparagus, and, uh, you know, half cup of rice. And I was like, man, you don't know how proud it makes me that you have actively asked for some freaking whitefish as a thing that you want to have to eat as opposed to some kind of, it was, this was a first snack after school. I was like, there is a, there's a pantry full of stuff that Dr. Thomas would be very upset about. And you are asking me for tilapia. Let's go, man. All right. Moving off of food, let's talk about metabolism. I guess they're somewhat connected because there's, uh, I think, generally an interest in understanding how people can change their metabolism, whether it's to boost their energy or to help them lose weight. And you have some pretty simple steps on how you can think about metabolism in a different way so that you can get that energy or, or drop some pounds or, or whatever else it might be that you need for metabolism change. Yeah, metabolism is so critical. It's so important. And you know, just to start with what the heck is it anyway, it's basically the sum total of everything that happens in our body 
that keeps us alive, that keeps us breathing, that keeps us functioning. It's all of those reactions that happen in any course of the day that keep us you know, living, that keep us hopefully thriving. That's the goal, but keeps us alive. That's metabolism. So here's the thing about metabolism. Most of us were never taught this. I am included in that group, was never taught this. But we think, we used to think, I'll say that, that metabolism slows down with age, right? Dave, I, I, for me, when I was 30-some-odd, yeah. I'm like, man, my metabolism's not as good as it used to be. I'm getting a little slower. I'm getting a little softer on the midsection. I'm not doing things as quickly as I used to. I'm just getting older. Like many doctors say that to their patients. BS, you're not just getting older. A study came out 2021, the journal Science, one of the most reputable you know, medical science type journals out there between the ages of 20 and 60, basically all our effective, you know, normal adult years, our metabolism does not slow down, does not slow down. Definitive study, 2021, the journal Science. What slows down, look in the mirror, I slow down. And when I think about it, it's true. Dave, when I look at my five-year-old girl that runs around and skips, she literally hops, skips, and jumps throughout her entire day. It makes me tired sometimes just watching her. I have slowed down. It's not my metabolism. So the cool thing is, you can get your metabolism right, working well, working optimally, efficiently. You as an individual, you are not broken. Many of us feel broken. Maybe it's our 30s, maybe it's our 40s, maybe 50s. We feel like, gosh, I don't have that energy. I don't have that stamina. I, I'm getting a little soft around the midsection. You are not broken. Your metabolism might be, but guess what? You can fix that in the matter of days to weeks. It actually happens really, really fast. The metabolism is made up of these energy factories called mitochondria. And Dave, you know what's so cool about these things? It's not like you're just born with a certain number and you're destined to have that number. You can actually increase the number of these energy factories. You can increase that by doing a couple healthy behaviors like choosing good food, the anti-inflammatory food, the real food, the colorful food. You can actually boost your production of mitochondria. Also, exercise. You, you and I are doing a bunch of that. You're getting ready for this competition. You're doing tons of exercise. Exercise boosts your metabolism because it increases the number of these little power plants called mitochondria. Exercise does that. You know, hot and cold, people that are into the you know, cryotherapy or into the cold plunge, that's what that does too. It's a healthy, what they call hormesis or a good kind of stress. And your mitochondria increases in both size and production. So you actually have more energy. This is one of the weirdest things I've ever heard of, Dave, that in science, we were taught that matter cannot be created nor destroyed. Same thing with energy. Well, that doesn't work that way in the body. You can actually create energy through building more and more mitochondria. This is converting the white fat to the brown fat. And you do that through healthful eating, through proper sleep, through exercise. You can actually increase your energy by building more factories in your cells called mitochondria. So you are not broken. Your metabolism may be for a time, but you can get that fixed and you can get that fixed in a hurry. Love that. So good. You have agency here and it's all in your hands. So uh, I love that. But you mentioned sleep. So let's jump into sleep because it's uh, a big old thing when it comes to health, holistic health, sleeping smarter to try and get into optimal health. And I know there are a lot of benefits for sleep, but would you just for the listeners, why is sleep so important? And are there ways for us to sleep smarter to reap those benefits. Absolutely. So sleep is one of the, I think, least well-utilized levers that we have in today's society. Too many of us, including me, stay up too late at night. We're not valuing that time 
supine, right? That's laying down on your back, time supine. We're not valuing that very much. And in fact, in my medical training, most of us that were trained in that were basically told sleep was kind of not that necessary. It was kind of, you know, every hour you slept, you weren't learning something. I was basically taught to not value my sleep. My favorite positive benefit from sleep, Dave, is that this is when your body gets rid of the crap. It takes out the trash. It flushes out the toxins. It gets rid of all the crap that builds up during the day. Imagine, Dave, I know you got four kids running around. I got six. Our house, if we never took out the trash, what would our house look like if we never, ever took out the trash? It would be such a <laughs> We don't even want to go there. Like it would be, no. I wish trash day was twice a week instead of once a week. We got a lot of yeah. trash. But, <laughs> but here's the thing. When you sleep and when you sleep effectively, both it, the hours matter, but the quality matters as well. That's when the magic happens. That's when your body rejuvenates. You've heard of this process called autophagy. That's when your body gets rid of the old stuff. It breaks down the old parts and cells that aren't working. It, it, it basically can recycle the stuff that's still usable, the amino acids, build new proteins. It refreshes, rejuvenates, flushes, and gets rid of the trash. This, is, this was not known when I went to medical school. This is from 2012, the work of, of uh, Dr. Nattergaard and Jeffrey Illith out of the University of Rochester. They discovered this process in the brain called the glymphatic system. It's basically the take-the-trash-out system. It's like the limps lymph system in the body, lymphatic system, but it's the brain system where you flush out all the toxins, all the garbage, all the stuff that builds up and might cause issues later on in life if you never take that trash out. This only effectively happens when we are sleeping. So this is reason alone to value your sleep. Plus, it'll, it'll actually help reduce your chance of heart disease, reduce your chance of cancer. Did you know, Dave, that, that those like me that, that were doing a lot of shift work that was actually classified as a carcinogen, cancer-causing when you're not getting enough sleep. And the reason, wow. yeah, the reason for that is it causes inflammation. When you don't sleep well, you're not getting enough sleep, inadequate or just poor quality sleep, that causes inflammation, which can cause later things like cancer, heart disease, diabetes, obesity, kidney disease, all of these things. So sleep is, I think, one of the easiest super t superpowers to basically utilize and it's free, right? It doesn't cost anything to get a good night's sleep. Well, maybe you got to buy the blackout curtains. Maybe you got to buy some earplugs. Maybe, you know, some of these simple things that might help you. But in large part, it's one of these least expensive but most powerful mechanisms to get healthy, to get your metabolism working well. And did you know that you can lose weight, Dave, while you sleep? Like if you're looking for weight loss, I found in many what? people, especially middle-aged, that can't lose that stubborn last five to 10 pounds. I ask them how they're sleeping. They're like, Oh, well, actually, I, I kind of watch Netflix for two hours every night. I'm only sleeping about four or five hours. I'm like, ding, ding, ding. Let's just, let's just manipulate that one thing. You can keep your diet the same for now. Let's just focus on getting seven or eight hours of quality sleep. Let's see what happens. Guess what? Your hormones balance. It is amazing. Sleep is the most underutilized superpower, and it's available to each one of us. At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter your search based on the qualities that are most important to you. Then you can book a free 15-minute consultation call with any therapist you're interested in seeing. So you can get a feel for whether they're the right fit before you commit to a full-length session. Alma also makes it easy for mental health care providers to navigate insurance. That's why 95% of therapists in their directory accept insurance for sessions. So you can find care that's affordable without stressing about the paperwork. You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit helloalma.com therapy60 to schedule a free consultation today.
That's helloalma.com slash therapy60. It's so interesting because there's been uh, a very recent, you know, we've only done it for a few weeks, but practice that Heidi and I have been doing in a wind down pre-sleep, which involves putting down devices, uh, you know, a good couple, you know, I was, I want to say a couple hours, but more like 90 minutes ahead of when we're actually going to go to sleep intentionally sitting in a space where we're going to have a conversation where work cannot come up with a cup of tea on a patio, whether it's my back patio or hers. And this like, you know, like it does take intention and of course it takes time, but the, like the wind down has afforded a more immediate falling asleep and then a deeper, more restful sleep. Once we have fallen asleep, because we aren't, you know, bothered by whatever it was that may have been going on at work or aren't overstimulated by whatever may have been on that device. And so, I don't know, if you're having trouble with sleep, is I mean, beyond maybe a wind-down practice, is there anything that you have tips-wise for someone to actually get the full benefit of that medicine that is falling asleep and staying asleep? Yeah, no, that's perfect. And you you made the perfect segue because winding it down and having that ritual is really important. We all know that with young kids, right? We have a bedtime ritual. We as adults need a stinking bedtime ritual. And we also need not only a regular curfew or regular hour that we fall asleep should be, you know, fairly similar, whatever day of the week it is. Maybe on the weekends, occasionally it, 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 it gets changed a bit depending on what we're doing, but hopefully most of the time it's the same. We need that kind of routine. And most people don't know this, Dave, but the routine for sleep it starts in the morning. One of the most effective things we can do is get ourselves outside for five minutes in the morning to see some of that morning sun. So it hits the back of our retina, goes to this specific area of the brain that tells us, hey, it's daytime. We need to get ready for the day. We adjust our rhythm, the so-called circadian or body, body rhythm. That is primarily adjusted those first couple hours of the morning by getting out into natural light. And that will profoundly affect the quality of our sleep. doesn't have to be long. So that's my first tip is in the morning, try to get yourself outside for two to five minutes, have the natural light hit your eyes. Don't wear sunglasses during this. It's a short time, two to five minutes, and that will help set your clock. At night, do exactly what Dave said. Have that ritual of a wind down. If you can do two hours of no screens, that's my goal. It, like Dave, it almost never happens because it's just tough when you work from your phone or your computer or whatever, and you have to do some stuff once the kids go to bed. So I try to do you know, two hours or one is kind of my, my absolute cutoff. And then I do a wind down thing like Dave does. I either sit and chat with my wife. I actually have lights in my house that are reddish in hue because you don't want the blue lights. So I, I changed all my light bulbs. I got rid of all the ding LEDs. And I know it's a little wacky, but I got these red lights that I put on at night. And I also have, you know, what, depending on where I am, I like to kind of sit in a hot tub at night, kind of helps mellow me out. Nice. You know, some people like a gratitude journal. All of that is helpful. Whatever works for you, but have some kind of, of ritual that you do as a wind down. And the other part that we often neglect and I think is super powerful is we need to stop eating about three hours before we actually hit the pillow. Mm. So no late night meals, no late night meals. We can have tea, something that doesn't really have calories. That's totally fine. Drink water. Dave, Dave and I are in a place where we don't want to drink a whole bunch of water because we got to get up and pee, right? And we don't want to be doing that too much at night. So don't drink a lot of fluid, but if you drink fluid like tea and that doesn't have caffeine, that doesn't have calories, totally fine. But try to stop eating about three hours before bed because eating, what happens after is your body has to metabolize what it ate. And that's super energy intensive and it'll wake you up. It'll also disrupt your sleep. You know, you've heard of, you remember this, the Thanksgiving phenomenon, right? We get tired after we eat the big meal, but two to three hours later, guess what we want to do? We want to eat again. 
And you can actually have that happen to you at night. If you eat too late at night, you might wake up two or three hours later and be like, crap, my body's saying I'm hungry. And you might wake up and want a snack. Don't do that. Don't do that. Try to have a food curfew as well as a regular curfew. So those are my sort of biggest uh, levers with respect to sleep. This feels like the most important question I'm going to ask, but I need a board certified physician's opinion on snoozing in the morning. I am, uh, not to bias the jury, uh, vehemently against. I, I like It makes me more tired. Uh, but I also, uh, at times, uh, am uh, met with opposition. And I'm curious if there is a, a, a standing, this is good or not good from the medical community, generally speaking. Yeah, I would say generally not good. So <laughs> any, I don't even like really, except when you're adjusting your schedule, I don't even like alarm clocks because your body is really smart. It has the center of the brain called the reticular activating system. You can literally wake yourself up at any time you need to without an alarm clock. Try it tonight. Say, tomorrow morning, I want to wake up at 6.01. I know it sounds crazy, but your body will wake you up at 5.58. Like, it's incredibly amazing how smart this area of the brain is called the reticular activating system, and it can do that without an alarm clock. Alarm clocks, what do they do? They cause stress. You, you know, the thing wakes you up, your sympathetic nervous system gets firing, and then, you know, if you want to press the snooze and have it happen five minutes later, 10 minutes later, bang, you know, it's, it's actually not good for the body to be <laughs> bombarded with that kind of a stimulus. Better to wake up on your own, but it takes a little time, especially if you have an early meeting, you're not used to getting up super early. It will take a little time, but getting that light exposure in the morning to set that clock, the circadian rhythm, it'll be super, super helpful. And I promise you within about a week, you'll adapt to whatever schedule you need and you want for, for work without an alarm clock. So I'm actually not a fan of alarm clocks, generally speaking. All right, let's go. Okay, next topic, moving off of sleep to stress, how you can move it from harmful to helpful which begs the question, what is this helpful stress that you speak of? But uh, let's talk about stress. Yeah, so stress, I, I, one of my favorite things to talk about, and we've been bombarded with it, especially the last couple of years. There was a really important study, Dave, that came out in 2012, looking at what are the effects of stress? And what was super interesting about the study, they had almost 200,000 people, it's 189 some odd thousand. So it's a huge, huge study. And they basically asked them, rate your stress as either mild level, moderate level, or severe level. That's the first part. The second part, which was really, really interesting, is what are your beliefs associated with that stress? Do you believe that stress is harmful, that it could adversely affect your health? Or do you believe that stress could be helpful? Could it be something you could grow from, motivate you, you could learn something, you could pivot, you could, could it be powerful and helpful in your life? And the people who had the highest level of stress and believed that stress was harmful guess what? It was a self-fulfilling prophecy. It was harmful. It actually did cause negative health outcomes, and they actually died sooner, the people that believed that stress was bad for them. On the flip side, the other set of people that were also in that really high group of stress, high-level stress, but they did not believe that it was harmful, and they believed that it actually could be positive, helpful, and growth-promoting they actually had a protective effect. In other words, they lived longer and had less health problems because of their belief, because of what was between their ears. So the cool thing about stress is that we largely get to decide how we respond to it, how we interpret it, and the meaning, the meaning that we attach to it. We're all going to get stress. And of late, of course, the data shows we've been getting a lot more of it than we're used to. But we largely are in control of how 
we attach meaning to it and how we respond to it. So that's the beautiful thing. It's, it's this big lever, but we got to be the ones in charge here. We can't let our devices or the news media or whatever else is telling us to be fearful and stressed out. We, we got to listen to the higher voice in our head that says, you know what? I'm in control of this. At the end of the day, I get to decide. All right. I like this idea. And also stress is a guarantee. It's going to happen. And it seems uh, like, well, that's nice to say, but how the heck do you do it? Like, how is there anything that you can recommend for someone to assign? Like, how do you go through the assigning positive meaning or, you know, like turning it into something that's good, that's going to help drive you as opposed to it feeling like, oh, man, another thing, another shoe dropped, another, you know, the, the, the world's against me. Like, no, the world's for me. And here's why it's going to be great. How do you do that? The, the way I personally do it, Dave, I love to gamify things. And this started in my early years. Like, in medical school, we had a big exam every Monday, which if you think about it, it's like, what a way to ruin a 20-year-old's weekend, right? Have a big exam every single Monday. That's the way it always was throughout my four years at UCSD. We had our exams on Monday. And for most people, they viewed it as something that would ruin their weekend. For me, I was like, oh, no problem. I'm going to study, study, study. And I did take one of those weekend days where I took a full day off. And then I got up Monday morning, did my refresh, but I gamified it. And in my head, I said, you know what? This test... Although, you know, it's not fun, quote unquote. It's kind of cool because I get to show what I've learned. I'm going to just crush this thing. So in my head, I viewed it as a game. And if we play games of any type, whether it be a board game, you know, like Settlers of Catan or Monopoly or, or something that we do on our computer, we like games. It's, it's, it's just a fact. We as humans like games. We like to win. So if we use this to our advantage and we gamify this whole issue of stress, we make it something, hey, I can crush this thing. I can learn from it. I can grow from it. How can I make this work? The minds of the Olympians teach us a lot here. If you ask any of them that have been gold medal or similar caliber athletes, you ask them how they view stress, it amps them up. They get excited. They want the competition. They want to crush the competition. And it gets decided right here in our head. So I personally like to gamify it and decide how can I, you know, learn to crush this thing that it's really sucking right now. It's really affecting me. It's not what I want, but how can I turn that around? How can I just conquer this thing? And sometimes you got to figure out the steps, but then there's the whole notion of what do you do to ameliorate or at least to adapt to all the stimuli coming at you from every direction. And there, I have steps in the book that talk about this. Breath work is a big thing for me. Exercise is one of my best friends with respect to stress. It changes, as you know, Dave, our energy, our, I hate to use the word energy, but, but our state, you know, in the Tony Robbins terms, right? Our state is yeah. everything. And the quickest way I know to change that is move your body. I got a pull-up bar in every house I live in or every place I go. In fact, on trips, I take the pull-up bar in my suitcase because it's a quick way. If I need to change my energy fast, I just do 20 pull-ups. And my energy, it's amazing. It works every single time. And if you don't have this, do push-ups. If you don't, you know, just do whatever it is you can do to change your state. It could be just a walk around your office building, around your house, go up and down the stairs. You could even stand in place and do some air squats or whatever that looks like burpees or a plank. I love the plank. Having that movement will change your state immediately, and then you have a totally different mindset with respect to whatever stress is in front of you. So there's a lot of tools in the book yeah. to deal with it, but exercise is one of my favorites. It's just, it's just one of the funnest things, and it changes your state immediately. Number one, I aspire to be able to do 20 pull-ups. You're making me feel inferior, but that's okay. I have something to shoot for now. But I, I remember when I was working in my corporate job, I, there was a conference room that had two doors, one on the kind of far end of the room and one on the opposite end of the room. 
And when something would happen that would throw me into a really negative headspace, this will sound crazy, but I would walk into the first door, take a couple of breaths, and then I would walk out of the other door. And the door frames were this invitation to release whatever that mental state that I was in like leave it in that room. I got poor people that walked into the next meeting. They'd walk into that cloud. But just the simplicity of even just like moving myself from one physical space to another and going through those thresholds, as much as it sounds crazy, there was something about that that allowed me to walk back into my office and be like, okay, I have processed that. I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna try and now reframe it or think differently about it because of the simplicity of moving, but body movement's a huge one. Why don't we talk about movement just for a second? Because obviously there's just like so much in it for whether it's, you know, revving up some endorphins or getting some energy, changing your mood, any, you know, any and everything. What are some of the simple exercises that people can do to just, if they feel themselves stuck, if they feel themselves in a, you know, in a rut, whatever it might be, can get them, you know, out of it or, if they want to jumpstart their day and they don't appreciate yet the connection between body movement and that as the kind of catapult for whatever kind of day you'd hope to try and engineer, um, what do you recommend people do to just get their day going or to get themselves out of stuck? Yeah, it's so those two things, Dave, breath work and movement, they're about the only ways I know of that you can change your state in seconds. You know, people know the box breathing. That's basically each breath. You, you you pick how many seconds, but you inhale, let's say, for four seconds. Then you hold it for four seconds, and then you exhale for four seconds. That's 12 seconds right there. You do five of those. It's only one minute that's gone by, and your state can be profoundly different with five breaths or two breaths or three breaths. So breath work is amazing. It doesn't have to be complicated. I think we we overcomplicate things. We want to learn all these different techniques and all the different types of medication. Just breathe. Take a moment like Dave did walking in one door, out the other door, and breathe. The other way is a quick bout of any kind of physical activity. So if you're at work and you have the ability to, one of my favorite pieces of advice for people is get yourself a standing desk. And you don't have to buy a desk, get a cardboard box that just came in the mail from Amazon or some other place. And you put that on top of your desk, put your computer on top of that and you stand up. And if you can do that more hours out of the day, it'll be so surprising to you how much more energy you have. And all you did was stand. There was nothing magical. The other magic that happens, Dave, when you stand more often is you move your body. You just naturally want to do that. It just makes you want to do that. I keep little dumbbell weights all over my house. My wife kind of gets a little upset with me because we trip over them sometimes at night, but I literally have them in every room of the house. They don't have to be heavy, whatever, whatever works for you. But I literally pick up weights and all throughout the day, every hour, there's a lot of data. And, and, and we know this from a lot of work that's been done uh, through Brendan Burchard and other people that say every 40 some odd minutes, you need a couple minutes of movement, some, something to change it up. And if you either do body weight exercise, like do, for example, a plank, Try to do a plank for one minute, you know, and if, if you can do that, try two minutes. If you can do that, try three minutes. After three minutes of doing a plank, you feel like you are ready to crush the world. And that didn't take anything. It didn't even take weight. Yeah. Your body, your body can do that. You can do a bunch of air squats. You can do um, burpees. My wife loves burpees or lunges. She's like the lunge fanatic. I personally like the plank. It's so easy. I don't even really have to, you know, it's just boom, hold that position. And I feel incredible afterwards. So little movements, my favorite day that I'll recommend everybody do is just go for a walk. I love to start my day with a simple 
couple minute walk outside for the sun benefits that I already spoke of with respect to circadian rhythm and sleep, but also just to kind of move my body and it lets my head kind of, kind of slowly get into the day without, I don't take my phone with me. I don't look at my planner. I just take two to five minutes and I go for a quick walk in the morning. I get my fresh air. I move my body. And most of us can afford two to five minutes in the morning. And then every meal that we eat, if we do a couple minute, five to 10 to 15 minute walk, so good for our metabolism. It's so good for our energy, our digestion. So these are the simple things, Dave. You don't need, need that gym membership. You know, It's nice to have one. I'll be honest. I, if I have one and I'm able to do that, I love to go to the gym because there's so many more things that I can access that I don't have at home. But you don't need all that. There's simple things yeah. that you yeah. can do. Stand up, walk more, move more, get some dumbbells, put them at the base of your desk, pick them up every hour for a few minutes. Really simple stuff that can be done. It doesn't have to be complicated. I'm always intrigued by people who love burpees. Like I, I want to like, I want to like really sit with Brooke. Like Heidi is the same kind of way. Like I, it, I do not understand this. It, they hurt my feelings when I see them on a workout. It makes me sad. And then I, I do feel stronger for having gotten through them, but man, do I not enjoy them when I'm, when I'm in the midst of it. All right. In the interest of time, I'm going to combine the last two things that we were going to talk about because they are somewhat connected gut health and inflammation right? These are two things that, man, um, I have had no understanding of, and I feel like I'm just barely starting to get some understanding. And I wasn't even intentionally trying to get it, but because of some of the way that the meal prepping and planning that has gone into this competition has forced some elimination of things that I now realize are not meant for this body. And the way that my gut has responded to actually being intentional in creating some consistency with things that are for my body, uh, it's just having a whole host of benefits, even if it wasn't the intended outcome when I started this journey. So can you talk a little bit about gut health, why it's so important, and inflammation, and how it, as the root of all disease, is something that we have to get a handle on if we're interested in health? Yeah, no, that's perfect. And they do go very well together. Hippocrates said it himself 2,000 plus years ago that all disease begins in the gut. I say, Dr. Hemingway says, all health begins in the gut. And the cool thing about it is your gut can change in one day, in two days, in three days. Like it's full of microbes, right? We've heard of the microbiome. That's all the genetic material that's in our bodies, on us, within us, in our guts and in our intestines. There's actually more of that, the DNA of them, the bacteria primarily, but viruses, protozoa, all these th organisms that live on us and in us, whether we want to you know, think about it or not, they're there and there's more of them and way more DNA that they have. Remember how I said the DNA is important, but it's what turns on and off those things, the genes that is even more important. And guess what does? Food turns them on and off. And so your gut health is directly responsible for basically any aspect of your body's health, whether it be your digestive health, which is obvious, your mental health, maybe not so obvious, more so now that we understand there's a connection between the gut, the so-called gut-brain axis. But at the base of all of this, like you were speaking of, Dave, and appropriately so, inflammation is literally the root of all disease. Heart disease, inflammation. Cancer, inflammation. And, and we're talking about chronic inflammation. This is the inflammation that's ongoing every day, day after day. This is stuff we don't want. When you fall down and hurt yourself, that's acute inflammation. You want that. You want your body to repair itself. That's the good kind, but then it stops when the healing is done. Chronic inflammation is this sort of smoldering fire that's burning in your body that makes your joints ache. It makes your bowel movements not awesome. It makes you get you know brain fog and abdominal cramps and low energy. All of this is actually from 
inflammation. And one of the quickest ways to reverse inflammation is to start paying attention to your gut, your gut health, the health of that microbiota, all those organisms that live in there that outnumber us, that have way more DNA than we do. We got to start paying attention to them. And we can partner Dave, we can work together with them synergistically, and they can do so many amazing things, not only decreasing inflammation, but they can actually make vitamins for us. They help us process our foods. They do so many things. I mean, they make, with the enterocyte, the intestinal cell, they make, in conjunction with that intestinal cell, 95% of the serotonin, that happy hormone in our body, is manufactured in the gut through the interaction between these microbes and our intestinal enterocytes, those cells there manufacture this through the health of our gut. So it is that important. It could be the converse too. Remember when I said food could be your best sort of lever, your most helpful medicine, or it could be a poison. And that all happens at the level of the gut. That's where it starts, right? It's that open tube. We put food through and what we put in there determines what lives there certain types of food. If it's junk food, there's the bacteria that we don't want. Those are the ones that send signals to our brain that tell us to be inflamed and tell us to crave more of that junk. I mean, literally, I hate it when people are under this notion from their doctor or other people, fitness enthusiasts, diet experts that say, you know, you need to just be stronger. You need to have this willpower. It's actually your gut telling you to eat the crappy foods. Once you change the health of your gut, guess what? You don't get those signals anymore. You actually don't even want to eat that super, you know, palatable, whether it be Oreos, chips, crackers, ice cream used to be my vice. I literally had ice cream every night of my life until I got my gut healthy. I never, ever crave ice cream ever. I still like the taste of it, but I don't crave it. It could sit in my fridge yeah. for two weeks and I'll never open the thing. So getting your gut healthy, which is actually pretty simple, primarily it's through the food we eat, but also all the other things Dave, that we just talked about, they actually interplay with the health of your gut. Did you know your gut can tell if it's night or day? Like, how did they figure that out? It's freaking dark inside there. They know if it's daytime or if it's nighttime, and they respond to the same cues that our body responds to. They respond as well. So we need to take good care of them, and they will in turn take good care of us. And we together can not only conquer inflammation, but we can also optimize our health. And it does wow. indeed start in the gut. So pay attention to your guts. <laughs> So if you want, like, if you want to try and take a step towards healthier gut health, is that a thing? Yeah. Healthier gut health. It is. Uh, it, like, is, do you, do you recommend a probiotic? Do you recommend kombucha? Do you recommend just start eating healthier and let time go by? I, I relate to cravings changing when you haven't had exposure to certain things over time. Trust me, thinking about the meal I'm going to have after the competition has come up many times. And as much as people are like, let's go to Cheesecake Factory. I'm like, I would become sick immediately if I ate anything off of the menu of Cheesecake Factory right now because I just haven't had those high-fat, oil-based, and I just, I haven't. I don't have the craving for it either. Um, I mean, I really do want a burger. That's separate from here. But um, probiotic, kombucha, like what, what's the step to, like the first step towards healthier gut health? Yeah, the first step is just avoid what I call the three Bs. So all of the food generally that comes in a bag, a box, or with a barcode, basically anything processed, because not only does it have the crappy, highly processed grains, flour, sugars, and the oils that are bad for you that are everywhere, Dave, like even this so-called olive oil dressing, guess what the first ingredient is? It's usually soybean oil, which is one of these manufactured oils that is bad for you. So firstly, food first. I always start with food first. Yes, there is a role for supplementation. Yes, there is a role for probiotics. I like to start with food. And 
I didn't realize this, but before I wrote my book, I didn't know there were literally nearly 100,000 different varieties of fermented foods on this planet. Like every culture makes some variation of their fermented food of choice, right? Some, some will like kimchi, others will like sauerkraut, others will do miso. Every culture has these fermented foods that are also very, very healthy and they're probiotic rich, right? They got the good bugs in there. So I go with food first, absolutely. And then try to supplement when needed. So there is a place for both, but you don't need to start. In fact, I would recommend people don't start with probiotics. They start with what you did, Dave, is eliminating some of the things that are super inflammatory and eat real food first. That's the starting point. If you just, if you just give your body a bunch of probiotics, you may actually feel worse if you haven't mm. prepped your body to receive them. So food first is always my mantra. And then yes, there is a role for all those other things, but at the right times, but food first always wins. So good, man. Good conversation, brother. I really appreciate this. I mean, any one of these things, food, metabolism, sleep, stress, your gut and inflammation, the way that we think about movement, like any one of these things, I think could be a massive game changer for someone in how they feel healthier, more energetic, more connected to, you know, wanting to get up and get after the life that they deserve. Uh, I just appreciate you being here and the work that you do. If, uh, if someone is interested in learning more about your work, they want to get preventable, that uh, is your most recent book. They want to listen to your podcast. Where do you send people on the internet to uh, learn more about you, to follow you, to buy your stuff, whatever it might be? Yeah, easiest place is um, my my website is Thomas Hemingway, just my name, thomashemingway.com. Instagram is just Dr. Thomas Hemingway, so D-R and then Thomas Hemingway. And between those two, you'll find everything. My podcast is called The Unshakable health podcast. And I'm, you know, two and a half years in and lots of interesting episodes, both solo cast, as well as many amazing guests like yourself. Um, those are the easiest places, Instagram, Dr. Thomas Hemingway website, thomashemingway.com and the preventable book.com as well. Awesome. All right. We, we ask every person who comes on the show, a single final question. Uh, if they're uh, is something on your heart, you think a listener today needs to hear that might afford them access to peace uh, that might give them a little inspiration or motivation that might um, kick them in the rear a little to go chase after a healthier version of them. What is that single piece of advice that you would give today? Oh, today, Dave, I would say connection. And the cool thing is we haven't even talked about it, but it's one of the most powerful things that we can do is connect with people connect with our environment, connect with our food. The power of connection is literally endless and limitless. It's one of those things that if we just take the time, it just takes a moment of thought, mindfulness, whatever that is, to connect, or maybe it's a quick phone call. Connecting with people is so powerful. There's way too much of the negative connection out there on social media and whatnot. We can be equally powerful and flood the earth with positive human connection. And that can change everything. Not only is it the best anti-stress thing that I know of, connecting with people releases a hormone called oxytocin, but also when you connect with your food and the people that share your food together, if you eat a meal together, connect with them. So the power, never underestimate the power of personal connection. Love that. Dr. Thomas Hemingway, you're a good man. I appreciate you being here. Thanks for sharing your wisdom with the crew today. And thank you to you, the audience, for hanging out with us for another episode of the Rise Together podcast. If you enjoyed this, please do share a picture of whatever device you're listening on, on the social media platform of choice. 
Tag myself, tag Dr. Thomas Hemingway. Let us know what you thought. And between now and next week, go connect with someone in your life. We'll see you next week on the Rise Together podcast. Thank you, Thomas. Aloha, mahalo, and thank you. Hey, y'all. While I am taking a hiatus from social media, I'd still love to stay connected to you on the regular. If you head over to MrDaveHollis.com, I have an opportunity for us to become one-way pen pals. Yep, I'm going to be sending out regular updates, uh, stories, uh, observations, hopefully things that will also make you laugh or think. Uh, And I'd love to be able to do that on the reg. So if you uh, are so inclined, hit MrDaveHollis.com, drop in your email, and buckle on up. I love you all. Thank you for all the continued support. Let's go.